Here we go, beginning in verse 1 of Jonah chapter 1. I believe it's page 502 on that paperback Bible that somebody might have handed to you, but don't be afraid of the table of contents. We'll get there together, all right? Verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done for the For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the, gre- for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. We believe that this is the word that God uses to speak to us and shape us. So for the last couple of weeks, we've been opening this book together. And this story of Jonah starts with a sovereign God and a sovereign word. There is a a person here, Jonah, 
who seems to have it all together. He's a prophet, a man of God, a man who already has begun to find his identity into who God is and who God says that he is. However, this person who seems to have it all together completely misses it, completely misses it, and it blows up in his face. And so here's what I've got to do. I've got to, I've got to get you to see that this book isn't just about a fish. I, I've, got to, I've got to get you to see that this book isn't hardly at all about a fish. And then I've got to tell you about this part at the end of the chapter about a fish. I've got you to get you to see that, that up to this point even, the fish is, is such a small character. Now I say that because this is one of the most amazing literary masterpieces in the Old Testament. Um, and, it's, and it's so easily re, um, remembered that we tell kids these, these kinds of stories. But it's a great place for us to see that often where we, where we take the Bible and make it about us or make it about something else that we think we like, we miss the good news of what God has accomplished. And the book of Jonah is a great place to see that, right? And so usually you open the book of Jonah and people argue about whether or not they believe a fish really swallowed a guy and the guy survived. Where in reality, the story has very little to do with the fish. In reality, as we've already seen before we even got to the fish, we see a picture of Jesus in Jonah. Now, don't, don't get me wrong here. In a few weeks, we're going to see how Jesus actually says that. So I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not going too far here. I'm just quoting Jesus. But we see that Jesus is our Jonah, the one who was thrown overboard to save the lives of many on the ship. Get it? And so it's tempting to sit back and argue about whether or not you believe a fish swallowed a man and he survived, but we're going to get to that today, and I want to begin to like, compel you to consider thinking about this differently. I've got to get you to see this book isn't about the fish. This whole book, Jonah and the entirety of the book of, of the Bible, we see is a library about the character and nature of God and a lens by which we understand who we are then. I've got to get you to see the grace of God working through a fish. You see, this is about the grace of God displayed in miraculous ways toward a man who should have known better. A highly religious man. A man who should have known better than to do what he's doing. And I've got to get you to see that this story is a warning to people who think that they have it all together. Who think that they have it all Correct, who have all the answers, especially if you think you have all the right religious or theological answers. They, like Jonah, you, like Jonah, are still capable of monumental disobedience that puts others in harm's way and in the end puts an entire city at risk. And these people, like Jonah, like you and like me, who think we have it all together, are in desperate need of God's miraculous grace. So last week, or the first week we started looking at this, we, we see kind of the premises that walk through this text. God speaks, people run and hide. From the very beginning, Adam and Eve, hey, do this thing, don't do this one thing. Oops, messed that one up. And then over and over and over and over again, God says, no, don't do this. No, seriously, here's 10 things that you really shouldn't do. Oh, you messed that one up again. Like, it just, this is the cycle. God speaks, people run and hide. God says, this is my word to you. People are like, no, I want my own word. I'm going to live according to my own counsel. All the way up to the point where God speaks a definitive word and, and, and he shouts. He finally raises his voice and gets, and gets and real demonstrative. And, and he's like, don't make me come down there. And so finally, God comes to be with us in Jesus to speak a definitive word, a word that would be made flesh so that we would know what God is like. 
And instead of coming and saying, like, don't wait till, don't you wait till I get there, and instead of dropping the hammer, the word that God speaks definitively in Jesus Christ is an eternal word of mercy and grace. When he finally raises his voice and he says, that's enough, I'm going down here to take care of this once and for all, he comes down and he speaks a word to you and to me in Jesus. And it's a word of mercy, a word of forgiveness. So God speaks and people run, and we're compelled to believe that what God is speaking finally and completely in Jesus is a word of mercy. But then last week we saw that hope sometimes comes in the form of a storm. And even like Jonah, we want to sleep through it or basically avoid the difficulties of life and run and hide in some comfort. It, in fact, might be a thing that God is actually giving and sending to draw us closer to him. To the point where today, as we look at the characters of, uh, of the, the sailors and then Jonah's fateful end in the belly of a fish, I think we can see a couple things here, and I want to kind of draw your attention to them. That ultimately, when God asks a hard thing of us, the painful truth about us is revealed. And God's transforming grace in the form of a willing substitute and then a miraculous deliverance is patiently waiting to catch us. When God asks a hard thing of us, the painful truth about us is revealed. And God's transforming grace, we find, is just waiting. It's waiting to catch us. It's miraculous. And it is, even in the case of this chapter, often unbelievable. And I don't want to soft sell that. I want to build up to that this morning. One of the first things we see here is that God asks a hard thing and then it reveals who we are. So don't think too uh, highly of yourself or too judgmentally towards Jonah, right? Jonah was called by God to go and speak a word of judgment to Nineveh. Now Nineveh, I asked you to Google this, um, just Google the words Mosul, Iraq, and see what you find, what kind of news headlines you find. This is a city Mosul, which now is on top of what used to be the historical capital city of the first modern empire of Assyria. And so don't, don't be too hard on Jonah. Imagine if God came to you and said, hey, go to Mosul, a city that, well, for the last at least two years has been under the power and control of ISIS. Um, now it's about kind of the nor only the northwest part of the city is really under the control of ISIS, but they're still fighting every day. And, and imagine if God said, hey, I need you to do something. I need you to go up there to the capital city uh, where I need you to, like this stronghold of ISIS and Al-Qaeda. And if you can, just tell them uh, that, that Yahweh told them to stop doing what they're doing. Um, to speak out against their violence. Go make sure, like, go in there and go door to door telling as many people as you can in the city of Mosul to stop hurting one another, all right? No more beheadings, guys, seriously. And so if you find yourself being a little bit judgmental of Jonah, thinking, well, I can't really relate to this, remember, God is asking him to do a hard thing, to go into the, the, the den of the lion, the capital city of the first modern empire, this massive empire at its height of power, as we see in this particular text, between the 6th and 8th century B.C. And just like Jonah, just like, I guess, if I asked you to go to Mosul today, share the gospel, to preach the lordship of God, our Lord and Savior Jesus to the people, you probably would think about, like Jonah, running from the face of God. And so here's what I want to ask you. Where is God currently calling you to do something hard? Where is God presently 
asking of you, demanding of you, suggesting of you to do something that you find to be incredibly difficult? Where is God asking something of you that you find to be like incredibly costly, such that you drag your feet about it and maybe even run in the opposite direction? Because that thing, that place where you would say that what God expects of you is the most difficult is a place where God wants to work. Jesus was the best at this. Uh, Jesus was the very best. When he would meet someone, he'd kind of walk up to them and immediately like, go right after that thing. He'd go right after that thing. Every single time. He was brilliant at this. And, I, and it shouldn't surprise you because you see this with a little child, right? If a little child thinks they've got something on you, they'll like, hold it behind their back, right? And they'll be like, hi, nothing, nothing to see here. And there's a strange thing about the posture of holding something behind your back. Right now, that's all you can think about. Even though you can't see what's in my hand, the posture of hiding it actually draws people's attention towards it. And Jesus was the best at this. And he was the best at walking right up to someone and going, let me see the thing in your hand. You saw this with Zacchaeus, right? Zacchaeus, his identity was in betraying his people. He was getting rich off of, uh, off of being a tax collector, basically, like was a turncoat for his people. Jesus walks up to him. What does he do? Right after it. Hey, you, in the tree, I'm coming to your house today. Goes to his house, and he's like, hey, by the way, I see what you're doing here, and you're not going to do it anymore. And he tells this man, Zacchaeus, the thing that was his livelihood, the thing that, that sustained him, he goes, I want that thing. That thing is keeping you from my will for your life. And Zacchaeus goes, he's transformed by this because he's like, oh my goodness, how did he see the thing? You see this, the woman at the well, right? The woman at the well is engaged in a, an illicit relationship and he's like, well, actually the guy I'm living with is not my husband and Jesus is like, I know, so have been the last couple of guys that you've been fornicating with. Yeah, they're not your husband either and she's like blown away. It goes right after it, after the thing. And he's like, I know, you know, I'm asking you for water but if you knew who I was, you would ask me for water and I'd give you water that you drink and never thirst again. Rich young ruler, Walks up, rich, young, ruler, and Jesus goes, yeah, I'm going to need you to not be that anymore. If you really want the kingdom, if you really want what I have to give that is eternal value, you're going to have to let go of the thing in your hand. Jesus is the best at this, but Jonah causes us to ask that question. What is the thing that God is calling you to do that is hard? Where is it that God is asking you to do something and you're thinking like, oh, I don't know if I can do it. Who are the hard people around you, the difficult people to love? What are the hard things that you know are wrong, but you continue to live in them? Where are you struggling to do the difficult things that God has called you to do? Where are you struggling to do the difficult things with your money? Where are you struggling to do the difficult and costly things with your time? Where are the places where you're having a hard time doing the difficult things with relationships. None of these are yours. They're all God's. He's entrusted you with them for a time so that he will be glorified in them. Where are the places that you are struggling to do the hard things? Because in those places, you will begin to understand who God is and who you are. Here's why this is important. It's really easy in this time together, right? It's really easy while I'm smiling, you know? It's really easy for you to think this is who you are. For especially those of you in the room who call yourself Christian, it's really easy for you to think this is who I am. This is my relationship with God. And it's really easy for you to think that, that your closeness with God 
can be revealed with how you feel whenever like the preaching's good and the music's good and the company's good. It's really easy to believe that this defines Christianity for you. That your walk with the Lord, your obedience to God can be seen right now. And Jonah shows us that's not true. And I want to warn you, this is literally the easiest part of Christianity that exists. Now, don't, don't hear me wrong. I know some of you are like, oh man, it was really hard to get here this morning. I got it. I got, like, I know, like, I'm, I imagine this is just how this works. Spiritual forces conspired to, like, you know, cause it be difficult to be here. I get that. That happened. Like, that's just what happens. Babies don't blow up diapers until right before worship, right? Cars don't fail until right before worship. Things, these things happen, okay? And I know you're thinking, well, it was really hard to get here, but I, I don't want to fool you. While I'm glad you're here, and while it was an accomplishment to come hang out with all these strangers, I get it. This is literally the easiest thing Jesus will ever ask you to do. The hard thing is going to happen, I don't know, this Tuesday afternoon. This next Thursday morning. When the thing that God has called you to do, the person, the man or woman that God has called you to be, is strained by a person, by something that's costly. You shouldn't evaluate how close you are with the Lord based on how much you surrender to him now. In this moment, where you're in a room full of other people who do it. If you're measuring your closeness to God by how you feel when the company is good, the music's good, the, the preaching is good, then you're not measuring your closeness with God. You're, you're really just close to your desire to feel good. And so God begins to call us to something costly more difficult. When God calls you to treat your money as secondary, even when you have little, when God calls you to love people that are difficult, when God calls you to invest in things that seem like lost causes, what do you do then? Do you question God's goodness? Do you trust that he's sovereign? Do you trust that he's really put you there for a purpose? Or do you rail at God? Why did you let me get in this uncomfortable position? Because what you'll find is when God asks a hard thing of you, it exposes you. It exposes you. It reveals your real value. It reveals who you really are. It did for Jonah as he was called to do a hard thing, to go to Nineveh, difficult place. And then it even did, as we saw here, the characters I want to spend some time talking about today is it did it with the sailors. It immediately exposed what they really value. You see, at this particular time, these would have been people that brought their gods with them, right? Trinkets or statues or small, we would use this word very, very broadly even, but even more specifically here, they would have idols, representatives that they would carry with them of their own gods. And we see them, they're like, everybody pray to their god, right? You see what they're really loyal to? Loyal to. They're not loyal to a god who's a creator and shaping them. They're loyal to whatever will save their life. Hey, you, you call your God. You call our God. We'll see what you should do. You wake up. Help us out. See, see whose God we should talk to. And I think what we find is that Jonah and these sailors are in the Bible to teach us what we're really like. Because we have a lot in common with them. There is evidence that if you're not careful, if you look closely, there is evidence that you're probably a runner. You're probably running away from God like Jonah. And the place where you can see it the most vividly is in the place where God is calling you to do something that you refuse to do. The place where you're currently going, you can't have this. Here's what I know. 
that place back here you're hiding that you don't want anyone to know about. You don't want me to find out about it. You don't want anyone sitting around you to find out about it. That place is going to be, I guarantee you, a thing that will drown you. And that idol, when you go overboard in the storm, it sinks with you. And it's a place where you're guaranteed to never grow. And any place that you keep private, whether it's like habitual sin or just a, a place where you, where you just really say, no God, I'm Lord here. I'm sovereign here. I manage this. God, you manage that. You, you handle the 90 minutes every Sunday when we get together. But this other thing, the whole rest of the world, it's mine. I say where I go. I pick my career. I pick my friends. I pick my relationships. I pick the time and money that I invest. Just want to warn you. This may blow up in your face. <laughs> you're on, you're, maybe it won't be a boat that's on its way in a sh you know, like, this, like sinking. But I promise you, the storm is coming, and where that place where God asks you to do the hard thing exposes what you really value. Don't ignore that, because here, here's what we see happens after that. One of the second things we find out is that there is a right and a wrong way to respond to the storm. Right? When that thing's exposed, like right now, you feel, like, you feel it, right? You feel me kind of like pulling at it, and you're like, this is my, no, this is, no, my sex life is private. What I do on my computer is none of your business. What I, what I do with my time and money, that's none of your business. You feel, you feel me pulling at it, right? Just remember, that's not me. That's the Holy Spirit teaching you through Jonah. But as you feel that, that place, it's like, you're like, oh, I want that. Don't take that from me. You, you begin to see what these, these sailors were experiencing. And there's a right and a wrong way to respond to that adversity. There's a right and a wrong way to respond. The, the sailors respond in religion. Jonah, when forced with the hard thing to go to Nineveh, he responds in irreligion, like he rebels against God. And see, most people think that you can reduce people into categories, only two of them, the religious and the not religious. The people who are you know, they find religiosity to be their identity and the people that rebel against religion. But in fact, what I would push back on you, and you see this in this picture here and you see this for the rest of the Bible, is that there's in fact a third category that for us is the most important. Most important. There's a religion, a religious category of people, an irreligious category of people, and then, this is going to mess with you, then there's Christians. Because you see, irreligious people find joy in experience. They find joy in, in the moment. You want to get lost in the moment. What, I'm fill in the blank, right? You would think you want to, I just, you know, I just want to live, capture this moment or really live, be able to, I don't know, pick a picture there. That's, that can be a very irreligious thing to find your identity and the experience. And so when someone comes along and says, hey, don't do that or do this, there's this tendency to go like, you don't know what you're talking about. I, I know I can find happiness in this experience. And your rules, your religion, it just holds me down. Or there's a separate category of people on the opposite end of the spectrum. Some of you like this, you're more OCD. And, and you think that, that like joy is in your order in how well you can manage things and control things. And this irreligious person over here, oh my goodness, they frustrate you to no end. Don't worry, they're frustrated at you too. And you think, no, there's real joy in, in following the rules. That's where joy is. This, this picture of religiosity, that joy comes from order and, and, and bringing and trying to restore order in the chaos. So one is like, what I do over here gives me joy in my experience, and over here, uh, what, I, what I have control over gives me joy by what I, what I do or maybe even do not do. And then there's Christians who come along and say that we are saved and given joy 
based on nothing we've done. We're saved by grace alone. We find out that our joy is not in the experiences that we find to be fleeting and meaningless according to Ecclesiastes in this life. And we find that our joy isn't in how much we can control ourselves, our own lives, or people in this life. We find our joy in what Christ has already finished and accomplished for us. That's a big deal for us. A radical experience of the grace of God. When you come face to face that you can't find enough joy, can you? You just can't. I mean, you like savor that moment, great. And then you have to do it again. And you've got to save up to do it again. And then you'll find yourself going, we have to go to Mexico every single year, or I have to go to this concert every time it's here because I just have to do it. I won't be complete without it. Or there's this person over here that's like, if I don't save all my money, if I don't keep everything in order, then I won't be happy. I'll be afraid. And neither of those things save you from the fear of loneliness. Neither of those things save you from the fear of failure, the fear of mistakes. It's when you realize that our helplessness puts us in a spot where we are either going to experience the grace of God or we're lost to our own devices. This is why one of the first books I recommend to people, it's called Prodigal God, Tim Keller book. Um, one of the most formative things for me is like, it's a very accessible view of the gospel. It's a picture of the prodigal son, right? And you have the prodigal son, and then you have the older brother. The younger brother who, who basically disowns his father, squanders his wealth, looking for what? Experiences, wild living, Right? Sexual promiscuity, running the other way. And the older brother, who, who finds his happiness by, by order and by following the rules. And what you find is, both of them dishonor the father. Both of them rebel against the father. This one, they don't really care about the father. They do not love the father. They just love the benefits of the father. And they're using him to get either pleasure or order and control. And we come along and see that, in fact, both of them, it's not the... It's not the rebellious person that finds happiness. It leads to failure and loneliness. And it's not the religious person that finds happiness. That person is just as lonely. Both are alienated from the grace of God. It's when we turn away from those things and seek the finished work of God's grace demonstrated for us that we finally see happiness, joy, contentment, in any meaningful sense. So look, the hard thing exposes you. Well, look what the hard thing exposes here. It exposes Jonah, and Jonah runs to irreligion, right? Jonah's the straight-laced guy, keeping up, you know, got it all, all ready to go, and then God asks a hard thing, and then you find out what he really loves. He doesn't love the Father. He loves whatever power or control that he had uh, with, with, with Israel. And so he's like, I'm out of here. He hates the Ninevites. And when God asks a hard thing of the religious man, he rebels into irreligion. And then what do these other guys do? These irreligious pagan people that don't follow the Lord, right? What do they do? When their idol's exposed, like, I don't want to die, did you see what they tried to do? They tried to get religious. They, tried, they, they turned to religion. The mariners were afraid in verse 5. Storm got bigger, and then they cried out, each one to his own God. And that's the funny thing about when you, when you think the solution is just to get religious, is that you, you really love your God when, when it seems like loving that God will benefit you. And you really want that comfort, but man, that idol goes down in the boat with you. You see, what we find is that there's not just two categories. There's not just a, a, a pleasure-based or a merit-based. What we believe is what's called grace, which is what we would call unmerited favor. It is grace-based. It's not fear-based. 
It's grace-based and driven by gratitude. And it only comes when you let go of these failing endeavors and experience a radical and miraculous forgiveness from God. And you realize the thing that you've been trying to get by seeking pleasure and rebellion, the thing that you've been trying to get by seeking order and obedience, God is freely given to you in Jesus Christ. The thing you were chasing after is being held out freely to you. The Bible tells us even since before the beginning of time is made available. And all kinds of people have approached even the true God, but for the wrong reasons. Notice the way they respond. They, they want two things that we would value. They value orthodoxy, and then they value ethics. Did you catch that? They go to him, and they say, hey, who are you? What God are you running after? And then they say, well, let's cry out to the Lord. Because they, were, they started because the, the catch this, this train of thought here, like the, the storm got big, and they got afraid. The storm got bigger, and they got more afraid. We'll come back to that. And so as a result, they, they go, well, let's, let's get orthodox. Did you catch that? Let's believe rightly. And then they start to cry out to the Lord. But they don't really love the Lord, they still just don't want to die. And so they cry out to the Lord. You see the capital L-O-R-D there? That's meant to be the Yahweh, the name of God, the Lord that is. I am, literally, the, the God that is. They cry out. They get orthodox. They're like, well, I'll just believe rightly. I'll, this is what I'll do. I'll start, I'll start doing all this stuff. And then they, then they start caring about ethics. Did you catch it? They're like, just, what do you want us to do? And they don't really love the Lord. They're still afraid. And they're like, well, man, I God, we're going to, Lord, we're going to get orthodox here. and we're, I don't know what to do. We're going to throw this guy overboard. Please don't, please don't get mad at us for this. We don't want to shed innocent blood and make you angry. And they're still afraid. And this is tricky because many people who would call themselves Christians have this view of religion. And what they come to find out is it doesn't deal with their fear. Did you catch the theme of this book for this particular chapter? It begins with fear, and it ends with fear. Beginning to end. It's mentioned multiple times here. It's fear. Afraid. What do we do with the fear? And here's what, here's what you learn. When you rebel into irreligion, it doesn't calm the fear. It doesn't make the yearning and anxiety go away. And when you run into religion, you saw this here, it doesn't fix the fear. It just moves the fear. And many people who would call themselves Christians live in a fear-based, my personal thought, if I'm just using these mariners as an example, they live in a fear-based religiosity. And even though they call themselves Christians, they basically are just using God to make themselves feel better. I want to warn you, you can hold that up. You can keep it up. But the only way to do it is to either get new friends every five or ten years when they find out who you really are, keep that air up, which Christians are really good at doing. Just like, well, these people found out who I am. I'm going to go over here to these people and make them believe a lie for the next five years. Seen this? This is the temptation. This is, remember? remember what Jonah did? He went to sleep. He just avoided it. This is what we do. Or you can just start lying. You can just start covering it up. But you and I both know that you can't follow enough rules to calm that fear. And here's what happens. There's this essential prayer to this type of religiosity. Did you catch it for them? I'll, I'll turn to God. I'll do right things if this. And this is what people will do. They'll say to God, essentially, I'll do anything, God, if this. And fill in the blank for the thing you want. And that's a profound thought. It's a profound sentiment and profound statement to make. I'll, God, I'll do anything, like these sailors did, if you'll just give me this thing. 
And here's the strange thing about that statement. Do you know what's on the other side of that if? Your actual God. When you come to God and go, God, I'll do anything if you'll just give me this, what you'll find every single time, the thing on the other side of that if is what you actually worship. Did you see them? God, will he throw this guy overboard? If I mean, if it saves us, well, I don't mind throwing that guy overboard. We just don't want to be in trouble. If you don't want us to throw him overboard, we won't throw him overboard. Do you catch this? They just, they just want to be settled. And what you find is, they didn't fear the Lord. They didn't care about that. But what they really feared was either condemnation or, for their sake, death. And so I would ask you, have you ever found yourself saying that? Bargaining with God? Friend, you're just rebelling into religion. And there are tons of world religions to choose from that will give you lists of things that you ought to do. And if you do them, you're good. And you're forced to do one of two things. Hide, like Jonah, or lie. What we find here, something radically change, changes them. Their idols don't save them. They're going to go down on the ship with them. Jonah's irreligion, running from God, not to Nineveh, doesn't save him. Puts him in trouble. Because you see, running from God is seldom about a location. I want to at least point out a couple things before we kind of move on to the, like the finale in the last verse. There's at least three things Jonah missed, and I think they're important for us to think about. Jonah missed God's sensitivity to sin. This is important because I, I fear often when I say grace of God, most people who would call themselves Christians, they think they know what that means, but that they begin to define it in unbiblical categories. And so what they really mean, we say, you know, God is gracious. What, we, what people really hear is God is nice. Like God is nice to me. But I want to make sure you define this biblically. We would say that grace, the grace of God, the grace that saves us, according to Ephesians 1 and 2, this grace of God poured out for us in Jesus is the unmerited favor of God. And those two words are incredibly important. Unmerited and favor. It doesn't just mean God is nice. It means that it is unmerited niceness. And that means we think very critically and very seriously about a word that isn't even used in the book of Jonah, but Jonah illustrates from beginning to end. Sin. We realize that to, to rebel and diso to disobey is actually rebellion against God alone. Against God alone. And so when we say that God is nice to us, if you don't consider the weight of your own sin, well then, that just makes sense, right? Of course God is nice to me. I am awesome. Have you met me? Have you met this Christian? you met this person? God's really nice to them because they really don't think they've ever done anything wrong. But friend, that isn't a biblical category of grace. A biblical category of grace is to weigh sin and say, we deserve death. All have fallen short of the glory that God alone deserves. We deserve a wrath and punishment. We deserve to be thrown overboard into the wrathful, chaotic sea of God's justice. That's what we deserve. And yet, in God's grace, we experience his unmerited, we don't deserve it because of our sin, favor, his closeness, his nearness, not his abandonment, but his acceptance of us. You've got to be careful because if, if, you, if, you, if you run one way or the other, you, I mean, you know who you are. Like if you get real excited when I'm like, you're a sinner and you're terrible and you're like, yeah, and that hurt, like one of, like half of you are going to go like, yeah, tell them, and then the other half is like, ooh, that hurt, Right? 
you see the difference, right? You're, you, 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 you need to understand your tendency to either love the fact that grace is unmerited or love the fact that grace is just favor. Because on the other hand, I say, God just loves you like a father loves a child. And half of you are like, you're soft. And the other half are like, yes. You get it? You see the irreligious and religious tendencies? And the grace of God is this third way that says, yes, you are worse than you thought. If you don't believe that God takes your sin seriously, look at the cross. But then the rest of you, you feel unloved and alone. I get to say the same thing to you. If you don't think that God loves you, look at the cross. And all of, all of your sin and all of your disappointing behavior and lifestyle before God is, is made right, right next to his mercy and favor. And we call that grace. It's not just niceness. Grace isn't just God gave you a gift and it's really cool. Grace is the reconciliation of the fact that I am a sinner, broken, undeserving of God's love, and yet I am accepted, adopted, redeemed, chosen to share in his glory forever and ever. Get it? Jonah did not. Jonah did not. He minimizes his own sin and he runs. And this is what I know. If you minimize sin, you will live in a constant state of running. He has no sensitivity to his own sin. You see, personal recognition of sin fuels honest confession. And that helps the religious person from hiding and running. But a corporate recognition of sin fuels compassion. It fuels a love and care for people. And that begins to like help and like speak out against the, the desire for the irreligious to just have satisfaction. See, when you're not the center of the universe, but God and his grace is, it changes the way you are sensitive to sin. Second thing here we find that Jonah has, Jonah didn't have a practical and functional commitment to God's plan. Functionally, he wanted to be sovereign. He wanted to be lord of over his own universe. He wanted to be a man in his own castle. However you want to put this, right? He wanted to be autonomous. He wanted to be an individual. He did not want anyone to tell him who he was or what he was going to do. You feel that? If you were born since 1980, this, one, this one's going to get you. This is going to really buzz you. Because we really want to tell people who we are. And, we, and I'm sound, you, you're acting like Jonah. You can't tell me what to do. Remember this, Patrick Henry? Give me liberty or give me death, right? I'd rather die than do what you tell me to do. Get that? You feel that like bubbling up in us? Friend, just, just so you know, like this ends badly for us when we do this. When we say, no, I categorize who I am. I, I get to identify who myself. I get to say what kind of identity I have. But when we consider God's sovereignty, God's greatness, his goodness, his plan begins to fuel an edifying humility. It's an edifying and it causes human flourishing. I mean, keep trying to impose your will on other people. But friend, that is a lonely, lonely road. You end up by yourself. Oh, you end up asserting yourself. You end up expressing yourself all by yourself. Because no one wants to be around you. Don't miss it. That's what Jonah, he was saying, no, I am not who God says I am. I'm not going to do what God says. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. The last thing you think, I think we missed here, and, if, and we have to catch this, that Jonah didn't have a commitment to God's grace. Not really. It's not that he didn't know. He was a prophet, up here, he would have known what grace is, and God would have shown forgiveness. But he didn't really admit his own need. You see, when I talk about the depravity of humanity, the sinfulness of people, everyone agrees. 
as long as we're talking about someone else. Like everyone is happy to talk about how broken and sinful the world is, but nobody really likes to talk about how broken and sinful the person in the mirror is. And here's what I know. If, if you are afraid of that, then what I want to tell you is you're missing out on the best gift that God has given us. You see, to really find joy in God's grace, you have to be willing to name yourself as a sinner. The people who have joy in God's grace, real joy, are the people who every day are willing to say, I am a sinner in need. And even now, right, this seems absurd. If you're, if you're not willing to identify yourself as a sinner and expose your own sin and sinfulness, everything I say just seems absurd, right? It just seems silly. What's he so excited about? Why is he so jacked up? Because once you have a transformative experience of God's grace, everything changes so remember, the sailors had fear because the storm got bigger, and then they had exceeding fear because the storm got bigger, but then when they threw Jonah over, what would you expect, right? The fear goes away, right? Fear when the storm gets, more when, when the storm shows up, right? More fear when the storm gets bigger, and you would expect, well, now that the storm's gone, the fear goes away, right? Their fear is related to the storm, not this one. God did something different. Did you catch this? It says in verse 16 that the men, it, their fear changed. They no longer feared their own lives ending. It says they feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and they made vows. Did you catch that? Like they had, they had a new identity with a new set of commitments, a new set, a new set of obligations. Something amazing that happens that when the sea is calmed by the willing substitute, God's grace transformed these people's fear. And that's amazing, right? When your self-centered fear is completely removed by an awe and wonder at something that's greater and more powerful than you, it changes you. And these men saw something, saw something amazing, that when there was a willing substitute, when they saw that they deserved death, but a willing substitute had been thrown overboard and now they had safety, it gave them a new fear, a fear that granted them joy, a grace and a transforming kind of fear and sacrifice and commitment that can only come by realizing that you have the unmerited favor of a God who in an unmerited way should destroy you, grants you favor. It changes you. It changes everything. And so now we get to the last bit. Verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And here's where we hear the most amazing thing about Jonah. When he finally gave up, the word the Bible uses elsewhere is repent. When he finally said, all right, fine, I'm going to stop running. He turns the other way. Now, if there's an argument about what was going on here, whether or not was, was he just like giving up and submitting to God's punishment, or what I think is probably most likely the case he really, like, we find out later, he, the reason he didn't want to go to Nineveh is because he hated them. I think we kind of see echoes of this. We'll come back to it. But my personal opinion, he's probably just was like, I would rather die than actually do what God wants me to do. And so he's like, fine, I'm done. And just throw me overboard. That's my personal opinion. But either way, the result is, regardless of his motive, that the willing substitute transformed the views of the people watching. They saw that willing substitute. And Jonah was willing to go and sink something crazy happened. Verse 17, the Lord appointed 
a great fish to swallow up Jonah. You know what Jonah was going to face, right? When you get thrown overboard in a tempestuous, the word here, ocean, there's only one thing. Maybe you'll float for a little while because salt water makes you more buoyant, but you drown. You most surely drown, never seen again. And Jonah knew that once they threw him overboard, he would drown. But something happened. When he finally gave up running, when he finally quit, and he finally relinquished himself, laid himself on God's will, God's plan, God's view of his sin that deserves punishment, and hoped for something he did not deserve. Did you catch what happened? A ridiculous miracle takes place. Ridiculous. And here's what I know. This is where I know if you're a skeptic, I welcome this. You're like, did a fish really? Okay, I welcome that. How can we explain that? I don't know. Here's what I do know. Your ability to believe in this fish is directly proportional to your belief in God's ability to miraculously save you. Your ability, like the... You will proportionally be able to believe in a crazy fish to the extent to which you believe that God miraculously saved you through a man dying on a cross and walking out three days later victoriously. Because if your sin isn't that great, then if I tell you Jesus died for it, eh, oh well. And I come along and tell you a fish saved the guy, you're going to be like, I doubt it. But here's what I know. Here's what I know to be true. When you realize what a miracle, what an unbelievable, okay, far-fetched and ridiculous miracle it is that God, across the course of time, would look at your sorry self and mine and say, I'm going to send my son to take that sorry person's place. When you, when you start to get your head around that, believing in something like a fish, all of a sudden isn't that difficult. And here's what I find. You'll ask, you can say that, you're like, do you really believe it happened, Jonathan? Or is this just a story to teach a lesson? Do you really believe it happened? And I gotta tell you, if you knew, <laughs> if you knew what a miracle it was for me to be here, if you knew what a miracle it was for God to, instead of abandoning me, the wretch that I am, sent his son to take my place, I mean, that's absurd. I love you, but I don't love you more than my children, right? And if I had to choose between you and my children, I just love them more. It's not because I don't love you, I do, but... It was a nice time. We made a good run, right? Bye. I'll say nice things at your funeral, right? But if I have to choose between my daughter and you, my kin, my own, my blood, they take the cake every time. Bye. And to begin to consider that God would show so much mercy that he would look at his own perfect son and look at me and choose to save me instead is absurd. That makes a fish a very, very small miracle to believe. When I think on what I deserve and then what God brought me out of, believing in a fish, it's not that big a deal. I think about the timing here that's so beautiful to me. I wonder how long that fish was there. Like, was the fish just like trolling behind the boat? Just like hungry and desperate? I don't know. I mean, was, or did the fish show up at just the right time? Either way, the fish teaches us a story illustrated for us in Romans 5, 6. While we were still weak, it says while we were the enemy, while we were sinners at the right time, 
Don't miss this. Christ died for the ungodly. The ungodly religious and the ungodly irreligious. At just the right time, a miracle happened. And that miracle that we trust in and we're changed by, the radical, willing substitute that changes us like it changed the sailors, happened in the person and work of Jesus. Oh, friend, if you will consider the possibility that Jesus is for us this fish, a miraculous means of hope, oh, it will change everything. It will change everything. And when you realize that the places where God is calling you to do or be something that's difficult, there is a new perspective when you realize that Jesus has already accomplished the difficult thing for us. And to consider the possibility that it's true would make even believing in a fish an easy thing to consider. I want us to pray, but I want us to pray with specificity. I want us to ask very clearly that God would begin to open our eyes to how little we deserve his mercy and open our eyes to how good and gentle he is in Jesus Christ, that it would begin to shape and change our hearts. And like these sailors, it would give us a new and transformed sense of the world. So let's pray for that. God, thank you so much for your goodness. I thank you for your mercy. Uh, I thank you especially uh, because it's completely unmerited. Uh, I thank you that I have not one day of my life deserved your goodness and yet I stand up here and get to just marvel at it, and I'm in awe of it. I thank you for uh, bringing us into this place where words of good news might be spoken. Uh, for the, those who are maybe running and looking for a way to, uh, to confess what they've been running for, maybe, the, maybe just run to pleasure and looking away from you, and they, they would probably describe themselves, they would never call themselves religious. Those people in this room, that if you called them religious, they'd be offended. I thank you that you've brought them here. Would you begin to open their eyes to the possibility that there's a grace that's been given to them freely, gladly, and definitively in Jesus that offers greater pleasure than anything we could seek out and find in this world? Would you give them the opportunity, if this is it, this is the place maybe to confess that, to let go of these secret and dark sins that we've been hiding, would you, would you begin to just, at, at just the right time, the minute those words leave our lips, minute those thoughts of repentance fill our minds, we're at just the right time caught by the mercy demonstrated for us in Christ. Or for those of us in this room that maybe our tendency is toward just trying to be in control and understand everything rightly, let Jonah serve as a powerful example that we may think we have it all together and yet be secretly hiding, secretly running from the hard thing that you've called us to be. And that is to relinquish our identity in and of ourselves and to find it as a good and gracious gift in Jesus. We are not our own, but now we are bought with a price. There is nothing that we can do, good or bad, to change what has been done for us in Christ. We thank you that that miracle is like a fish that would save us from drowning in the middle of the ocean. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, we ask this. Amen.